The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, policy, markets. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It wasn't until the index fund got dirt cheap, kind of met the internet starting up, information was spread more quickly, and people had a lot of experience too. They were looking at their fund managers over the years and going, you know, it just, I paid a lot for underperforming. And so a lot of that came together and really around 2005, 2008 in particular, uh, that is when the tipping point arrived. And since then, it's just been like rocket ship all towards passive. Be the market. Don't try to beat the market. It is a mega trend that has dominated the investing world for the better part of 20 years, with investors sending trillions upon trillions of dollars into passive cut rate index and exchange traded funds. The stock commission has all but died. The market has never been so accessible. What does this mean for you? Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com, FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to my listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me, my guest is Eric Balchunas. He is Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's a prolific writer, author of the Institutional ETF Toolbox and the Bogle Effect, and co-host of uh, both the Trillions and ETF IQ podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Good long time no talk. Long time no talk. How's South Philly? It's good. It's a, it, South Philly is like the value stock of the Northeast. It's, you get a lot of bang for your buck here. It's close enough to New York, close enough to the beach, but it can be a little grimy. But uh, I, I like it. We've, I've, I've learned to like it. I'm not from here. I moved here about 15 years ago, but um, we have a nice little life here. You always say growth at a reasonable price or some other. Yeah, maybe that's better because <laughs> it is. I will say it is getting that condo thing going, where you know um, neighborhoods are starting to be more condoized, and you can see it. Uh, I think some people are, you know, finding what I found, which is that this place is. It reminds me of Brooklyn circa '96. You know, oh, right when it was like those Time Out New York articles on Brooklyn being the new Manhattan and stuff. Philly's definitely getting a little hotter, um, but it still has that Philly grime. It, I don't think that could ever go away. And the infrastructure isn't quite as good as New York. It's just a little always no, lazy. I'll say I'll say this, Eric. No sleep till Malvern. Uh, <laughs> Philly, Philly is the metropolitan. Philly is the home of Vanguard, the indexing and ETF colossus, which you've written about, and Jack Bogle, the late Jack Bogle, who. Is uh you know wrote his senior thesis on at Princeton about this a person who we both knew. I wanted to talk to you broadly about you know it's called the Bogle effect and and we we have a general public radio audience and everything, but I don't think that the average investor or mom and pop out there realizes to what extent investing has been democratized over the last quarter century and especially over the last three years. I mean, we effectively saw the brokerage commission die. Yeah, I think the brokerage commission going to zero was honestly possibly a negative event because if it it gets you to trade more, that is not good. Um, I you know there, so that's one thing. Although 
it's if you can control yourself, certainly a, a trade that's free is better than paying like 50 bucks or whatever it cost 30 years ago. But yeah, so everything's been democratized for better or worse. The Bogle effect and what Bogle did in Vanguard is so extraordinary when you sit back and analyze it. Let me start with a couple data points. Va- yeah. Vanguard has taken in $1 billion a day for the past 10 years. I mean, that is an enormous amount of money. A lot of firms out there, if they get a billion total, they're happy. Vanguard does that a day. That data is so compelling to me, and I had to write about it. Vanguard is a private company, so a lot of people just don't pay attention to it as much, but it is massive. They have about $8 trillion in assets, and they have about 27% of all U.S. fund assets. That market share of 27% is double the last high-water mark set by Fidelity. So think about any industry where somebody gets that dominant that quickly. Um, I think it deserves a lot of examination. And the fascinating thing about Vanguard and, and what people love about them is they only account for 5% of the industry's revenue. In other words, all the money goes to the investors. And that's exactly what Bogle would go around preaching um, about the asset management industry. So wait, what does it run What does it run like a kibbutz? Like, let, let me explain the difference again for our lay listener. A Vanguard index fund, I, I'm an, an avid Vanguard account holder. I love it. I've switched family members over to the index method. Broadly speaking, Eric, we're talking about be the market. Don't beat the market. Don't try to go out there and get a faster horse. Nine out of 10 people, the best they can do is the return of the Standard & Poor's 500 index, which is the broad stock market barometer in the United States. How is Vanguard making money if it just keeps telling you, well, we'll charge you 0.05% instead of 0.10%, where other mutual funds that are actively managing and paying people to beat the market are oftentimes charging you a half a point or three quarters of a point? I think you bring up this important distinction of assets versus revenue. Yes. So by charging 0.03%, which is almost nothing, then again, they have $8 trillion in assets. So that does equal $5 billion a year in revenue. That's not nothing. But to your point, they are a very lean run shop. Um, a lot of the rest of the asset management industry uh, arguably has a lot of gravy. And I think that's part of why they were so disrupted by Vanguard. You know, They charge, as you said, let's say 0.75%. And if you know over 20 years, nine out of 10 of them can't beat the market, and you can buy the quote market in the form of an S&P 500 index fund for nothing, well, obviously people are going to do that. And that's sort of been this migration. I call it the well, what was that? What was that tipping point? I worked in the brokerage industry out of college, and people didn't used to scrutinize yeah. the numbers that much. I mean, the genius of it was was if the market had a great year, like it had a great run between 1982 and 2000, and you know you're up nine percent, and the stock market is up ten percent. Nobody's going to scrutinize the relative returns, much less the cost basis. You you make a great point, and um, that's why 97 percent of Vanguard's assets came after Bogle stepped down as CEO. He basically was out there for 25 years trying to explain why indexing was good. The other problem that he faced was he wasn't paying brokers to put people in the fund, so he was operating outside of the system. And the third thing was um, people just didn't care that much about cost. There was no internet. Information wasn't as easily spread. So it took a long time to get the message out. And the first index mutual fund that Vanguard launched in 1976, which charges 45 basis points, but oh, that's point. Is that 0.45%? So it wasn't that cheap at first, but the mutual ownership structure of Vanguard, which is where the funds own the company and the investors own the funds, therefore, when they get extra assets or profit, 
They just vote to lower the fees. So it took voting to lower the fees over 45 years to get the fees down to 5.05%. But it's when they hit about 0.15%, 15 basis points, as we say, that's when it really started to turn. So it wasn't until the index fund got dirt cheap. Also, it kind of met the internet starting up. Information was spread more quickly. And people had a lot of experience too. They were looking at their fund managers over the years and going, you know, it just I paid a lot for, for underperforming. And so a lot of that came together. And really around 2005, 2008 in particular, uh, that is when the tipping point arrived. And since then, it's just been like rocket ship all towards passive. So passive broadly, you know, Vanguard doesn't own the index fund. It's kind of a commodity now. You could go to Fidelity, Schwab. There are all these other ETF providers. If you look at uh, the Spiders, uh, Barclays, what was it? State Street back in the day. The, the, the index fund was there, but what really tipped it over and revolutionized it, I think, at the turn of the century was the exchange traded fund. The fact that you didn't have to call a 1-800 number and wait for a quote at 4 p.m. and buy a five-letter uh, ticker. Like a like a mutual fund that you could just buy uh, an exchange traded stock like you would IBM and it would own an entire market. Yeah, no, the ETF did a lot to get out the concept of indexing and get out the concept of low costs. There's no doubt about it. A lot of Bogle's closest friends tried to explain this to him, but he was not a fan of the ETF. He thought he just didn't like anything that traded. He didn't think there was a need for it. But in, to your point, I think that's the view of most people. The ETF was helpful in getting that out. Now, instead of you having to go to Vanguard, Vanguard could come to you more. And that really helped things. Um, he did struggle with it. But one thing one thing that I wrote in the book that I found fascinating was the ETF, they got the idea off of the Vanguard 500 index fund. And so the guy who started the ETF, Nate Most at the American Stock Exchange, came to visit Bogle in 1989-ish and said, hey, can we have your Vanguard 500 ETF trade on an exchange? And he was like, no way. I don't like trading. So he told him to get lost. Uh, he, then Nate Most goes to State Street and uh, launches SPY, the first ETF. And the fee on SPY in 1993, when it first came out, was 0.20%. Why? That's what the Vanguard 500 index fund was at the time. So in a way, you know, Bogle... Well, did Vanguard regret that? Because it really belatedly, we had the CEO at our offices in Smart Money 20 years ago, and they came in. What was it? The Vipers. Yeah. <laughs> they belatedly came to the ETF game. They realized... We've become a victim of our own success, and people are kind of aping at us. And if we want market share, which even a private company in the interest of its shareholders wants market share, wants to gather assets, we have to get into this business. Yes. Um, so they launched the ETFs after Bogle stepped down as CEO, about 10 years. And they launched in 2001, which, to be honest, was still pretty early. I mean, in the past 10 years, we've seen Fidelity, JP Morgan, Goldman, uh, T. Rowe Price, massive companies. That would call those late to the party. Vanguard in 2001, I would say, was relatively early, and it really worked for them. They now have, I think, around 29 30% market share. And in a couple of years, they're probably going to pass BlackRock as the largest ETF issuer as well. Bogle wasn't thrilled with this, but the, the reason Vanguard wanted to do the ETF, and the Gus Stouter, who was CIO at the time, told me this, was not really to distribute Vanguard, although that was a nice byproduct. It was to protect the index fund investors from people who wanted to trade. Because all, all through the decades that Bogle ran Vanguard, they would have to turn down money. They'd have people who want to come into a Vanguard fund short term, and they'd say, no, we, we don't want you to do that. You're going to create costs for our investors. And he was very protective of the individual investor in those funds. So they turned down a lot of money early on, which I found to be pretty interesting as a young asset manager. That's e not easy to do, but they didn't want to have trading. So 
Gus Souter made the ETF a share class of the mutual fund to protect it. So it wasn't totally distribute Vanguard, but that was sort of what it did. And that's sort of what Bogle saw it. And Bogle wasn't really, he was also scared of Vanguard getting too big. Uh, he felt though his biggest fear for Vanguard was the enemy would be within. It would be our clients turning from real people with souls to just numbers. And you have 30 million clients. Uh, it's very difficult to serve them all as human beings. And, and he worried about that. And that is something Vanguard is probably going to struggle with. Their customer service doesn't get the greatest reviews, but um, they have built up so much goodwill, so much trust, and people love low cost now that it probably won't be a big deal. But it is something that they need to, I think, worry about. And it was Bogle's sort of fear. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Eric Balchunas. He's senior ETF analyst. I call him ETF guru uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he covers this industry so well. He's author of The Bogle Effect and the Institutional ETF Toolbox and co-host of The Trillions Podcast. I got to ask you, this cuts both ways. When you talk about one company having $8 trillion in assets, why doesn't it ever brush up against too big to fail concerns? We had this consideration with traditional Wall Street firms Lehman Brothers, J.P. Morgan, others that the Fed had to come in and bail out in 2008. And now whenever I go and see the by far the, the biggest holders of the most held stocks in the country, whether Tesla or Amazon or Google or you know any pharmaceutical, it's overwhelmingly vanguard by dint of the fact that people have sluiced money, trillions of dollars into this company over 15 years. Yeah, you bring up a good point. So right now, Van of take a given stock like Apple or Microsoft, Vanguard's going to own about 8.5% of the shares. BlackRock owns another 7 And there's a, sort of a big drop down after that. So BlackRock and Vanguard together own about 15% of every company in America. And while I, I will say that's not Vanguard and BlackRock's money, it's the money of 50 million people. So it's not like it's just one person. Vanguard and BlackRock do have a corporate governance group that does get to vote on every issue. And that is a small group. And this is part of the concern of, uh, you know, people are, are, Larry Fink in particular, BlackRock gets hit from the right and the left about how he votes. Uh, he's talked about climate change. So he, he upset the right, but then he doesn't go far enough. So Vanguard and BlackRock are now have a, basically a target on their back. And I think that's probably what is going to get regulated. But the rule in the books is no fund can own more than 10% of a company. But the Vanguard Total Market Fund, which is their biggest one, only owns about 2.5%, of Apple. So it could grow three times from here without hitting that mark. And that, that's because the rule came out in 1940 when there were people would launch one fund. They wouldn't make fund complexes. So it's possible they look to change the rule. Maybe a company can't own more than 10%. I do believe that's something that will happen. I asked Warren Buffett, who was gracious enough to be interviewed for this book, what he thought about Passive and Vanguard getting so big. And he said he still recommends people to go into index funds that aren't professionals, uh, but he does say that it will probably be a policy issue down the road, but it is it is a topic for another day. So I think that's sort of where I land as well. I think something's going to happen. But here's the thing about the Bogle effect is the Bogle effect is bigger than Vanguard because as you said earlier, Fidelity has cheap index funds now. So does Schwab. So does Invesco. So does Goldman. So does JP Morgan. So and Bogle wanted this. He wanted Vanguard's market share to go down ultimately because then the whole industry would have gotten more cheaper and better stewards. And so this would be Bogle's dream is if these other companies would get more assets into their low-cost index funds. And that's why the, the Bogle effect is so massive. It's not just the growth of Vanguard. It's just everybody copying them and all the money going to Vanguard-esque products. So ultimately, I think what we'll find is Vanguard probably will come up with a new policy or something where they can't grow anymore. Uh, but these other companies are going to have plenty of low-cost options for people. So the idea of Bogleism, 
is certainly bigger and here to stay, even if Vanguard has a limit. Eric, does low cost and no frills necessarily mean low conviction, low, uh, you know, low commitment? I'm talking about activism and ESG. When you have a company like Exxon and others that's being nudged for not being as advanced in terms of alternative energies and uh uh, uh, carbon neutrality and everything that you need to have the shareholders come in and by dint of the fact that Vanguard has $8 trillion of assets and it's most often the biggest holder of everything, it should come in and vote on behalf of its holders. But then Vanguard turns around and says that activism and Schwab and all of the other ones that do these cut rate funds, they say, we're not getting paid to do that. It's not like a hedge fund manager that you're paying him to affix himself to the ankle of, of uh, Disney or another thing to get them to do something or not do something, that this is just take it or leave it. You have to buy the entire market, tobacco, warts and all. Yeah. So this is a complicated issue and probably the number one issue that Passive and Vanguard will have to deal with. We The good news is they're very transparent. They tell you how they vote. Uh, there are some cases where they'll vote against, say, the Google CEO's uh, pay package. You're like, yes, that's great. Then there's other cases where maybe they don't vote with something that's pretty aggressive in terms of limiting uh, an energy company. Um, and so people are going to have to deal with this. I think if you have a company going too aggressive into ESG, which is, I think, what Larry Fink and BlackRock are starting to deal with, you're going to have a huge reaction to that. And that's why there's been ultimately a, a whole uh, wave of anti-ESG ETFs. Some of the Republican politicians have come out and said, uh, you can't do this. We're going to have like rules in place that pensions can invest in an ESG-focused uh, company. Um, some pensions in Texas were upset about Larry Fink's uh, de- like anti-energy talk. So this has put Vanguard and BlackRock into the political sphere. I think if you, I interviewed a lot of advisors, and in the section of the book where I look at this, I asked them like, "Do you care how they vote?" Almost nobody cares. Um, not saying it's not important, but their holders, what they care about is low fee and good tracking, and so. Vanguard and BlackRock have to hold Exxon. So it's not like they're going to kick them out. They have funds that don't have Exxon for you if you don't like that. But the big giant ones are going to hold the whole market. The question is, do you, you know, if you really care about this issue, I would look at, I would just Google Vanguard stewardship voting report or BlackRock and look at how they vote. Look at what they talk about in the the, uh, first part of the report. They give you their sort of, you know, general comments on things. Uh, And then you can pick maybe which index provider you're more in line with. It's possible down the road, this is how people pick their index funds. Since everybody will have a three basis point total market fund, you can then pick with who you think is going to vote more in line with how you feel. In my opinion, I think Vanguard and BlackRock should come up with some kind of a technology or polling system that is able to get capture the 30 million investors, you know, I guess, vote, vote and then the vote that way, rather than have a couple of people who lit, are in the corporate governance group make those decisions for those yeah, 30 so million it's people. A share, it's a shareholder democracy, but it's a really diluted shareholder democracy where you have such a Costco, Amazon type wholesaler at the top that gives you cut rate access to the markets. But it's so far removed from the mom and pop investor club and the whims and the wishes of the individual investor, which to be fair is hard to do. Not every individual investor is going to send back the proxy vote and you know vote on his convictions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Eric, what what are they what are they going to do about growth Vanguard specifically? I mean, I remember we were quoting a company at what 2 or trillion, 3 trillion dollars of assets under management. The financial crisis happened and they were such a beneficiary. But are they going to move into banking? Are they going to move into other areas where they can I, I imagine their customers would want it, would want to have 
if they trust the brand and they like the brand, they want to have everything in one place. But just like Bogle, they're leery of expanding and becoming everything to everybody. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. And some people ask me, where's the next place the Bogle effect, the Vanguard effect is going to hit? And my number one answer is the advisory world. So the funds world is, it's basically, I call it, it's like a hurricane. The hurricane is right over the advisory, the funds world right now. It's like hitting hitting land right now. But where it's headed towards next is advisors. And there's 26 trillion of assets managed by advisors. These are wealth managers who pick your funds, do your tax planning, all that kind of stuff. $26 trillion. $26 trillion. It's actually a slightly bigger than the fund industry. So this is, and a lot of them charge 1%, maybe more, maybe a little less, but they've now gotten really big. And it's almost as if they're like fund managers in the 90s because they charge a percentage of assets and the assets have grown so much over the past 20 years. They're they're rolling in it. And you know how much value do you get? And this is going to cause, uh, I think, a lot of disruption because Vanguard now has one th- over 1,000 certified financial professionals employed there, and they charge between five basis points and 30, depending on how much money you have, to basically be your wealth manager. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. A, it's going to push down fees in the wealth management business. And B, it's going to push Vanguard into some unique unVanguardian places because if you're the wealth manager for a very high net worth individual, they not they may want a private equity offering. They may want hedge fund exposure, alternatives, maybe even crypto. So I think Vanguard is going to start to have to come up with ways to service these individuals if they're going to be their wealth manager. And that could mean, you know, we've already seen them dip their toes into private equity. Now, Bogle would, didn't want any of this, but- you could argue some of these places could use a little vanguarding. And so I, in the book, I have a chapter called Bogle versus Vanguard. And I look at this sort of gap forming between what Bogle thought or what he would do and what where Vanguard's going. And it's growing. But I don't really take a side. I, I could see both sides uh, of this. You know, Bogle was like, just hold a total market index fund for 40 years. Everything else is a distraction. Vanguard is, is again, trying to expand and, and push their mutual ownership structure and their, their disruptive capabilities into other areas. And I think a lot of Vanguard fund investors are also older and they need more help now. You know, just having a mutual fund isn't enough. And so Vanguard's like, we have this built-in pool of, of potential clients and we can service them our way. So let's just start an advisor. So it's already got about $300 billion in assets, which is insane for about five years on the market. Eric, can you illustrate? I remember Jack would meet people at the Princeton Club and he's always have these stats handy that shows how the actively managed mutual fund and hedge fund industry, they, how much excess profit they would capture over something as simple for our listeners that just by being in something like the Standard & Poor's 500 index at a cut rate ratio versus an actively managed mutual fund that's charging you maybe 10 times as much, what the lost opportunity was for gains for the average investor. Do you have a, a number handy or the opportunity cost Yeah, for people? I mean, you don't, want to be, you don't want to be subsumed in jargon and everything, but people, if you had to explain to your aunt, for example. Yeah. So Bogle uh, was, was, again, he had to get creative in the 70s and 80s to explain why indexing was actually not average. And one thing he did was he have a chart called the growth of $10,000. So picture $10,000 at year one, and it grows for 50 years. On one line, you get 7% annual return. On the other line, you get 5% annual return. He argued that active mutual funds would take away 2% from the market because of their expense ratio and the trading costs. So you get 5% a year with them. You get 7% in this sort of frictionless index fund that charges nothing. Over 50 years, the 5% will give you uh, just over, I think, $180,000. The other one gives you about double that. And so if you put a million, you could see how compounding 
and just those the, it doesn't seem like a lot the humble humble arithmetic he yes yes and compounding in particular is such a magical thing and you you want as little other people in there as possible and that's what i think vanguard serves up so once your money starts compounding you get less and less i mean you get more and more with vanguard and he had this uh really fascinating thing in that uh 10 growth of $10,000 chart i just explained what's fascinating is the asset managed industry with the 5% gets 60 70% of all the gains so that is sort of what he would say and he would again if you go long term the index fund actually winds up on top or in the top 10% of all funds if you go long enough but in america that's a tough sell because a we're impatient b we like number 1 the best you know it's like top gun and so he had to sort of i guess uh really go ab- above and beyond and what you just described is or what i just described i guess is one of the ways i think he was able to get it to click for people that when you move these little small percentage points into dollars and cents over time the difference is astounding well, what's left in the kind of the rump actively managed mutual fund industry, if you if you have to say right now, I mean, Vanguard has $8 trillion. There are many more trillions of dollars in other index funds and ETFs, but there are a lot of people that just don't look at their statements that much, much less scrutinize them for cost basis. But what is left? What is the opportunity if Vanguard were to keep you know, hoovering assets away from active managers? Yeah. So active mutual funds are actually... <sighs> This is not like any other business because if the market goes up, their assets can go up, even if they see outflows. So they've actually grown even with all these outflows. So today they have about 58% of all fund assets and passive has about 42% of all fund assets. We see that going over to maybe 60, 70% eventually. At some point, the pendulum will probably stop somewhere. And what we think is going to happen is there'll be a barbelling effect where as passive funds actually take over the core of people's portfolios and they kick out the sort of legacy active funds that are look like the S&P but might make small bets around the edges and yet charge you 80 basis points. Th- those are being replaced by Vanguard. We said that's closet indexing is being replaced by actual indexing in the core. But people aren't a lot of some people are happy with just that. The Bogleheads are probably happy with that, but many people want to do some things around the edges and decorate the portfolio. So what I think is happening is people want very active, very different, and very fun things to decorate on their otherwise boring, cheap beta, and also just to keep them distracted. So we call that hot sauce. So we think there's a growing market for hot sauce. This would be like the Kathy Wood and the Arcs of the world. This would be th- hot sauce, hot sauce ETFs that just kind of you know they're crazy. Add some add yeah. some salsa to the dish. and they have nothing. They have no overlap with the Vanguard funds. So they and they possibly present maybe like a call option on the future. You know, ARK has been- A lottery, a lottery lottery ticket. ticket, Yes. Crypto is a little like that. People are like, well, I don't know what it means, but I I don't want to miss out if it goes up a lot. So you do 2% there. You put 5% in ARK just in case Kathy and her, you know- And I always remember Jack being okay with that. If you wanted to have a little 4 or 5% of your portfolio just to spice up your life. Yes. I think it actually has a behavioral uh, benefit because if it is able, if you're able to scratch an itch- that you don't touch the core, which is a cheap index fund, you allow compounding to happen. The key is to not touch the core. I always tell people, what Bogle was really advising was planting a tree. You put the seeds in the ground, and it takes 45 years to grow the tree. That is very difficult because it, you know, it's like watching a tree grow, literally. So if you have something else to do with your time, the tree will sort of grow in the background. And I think that's what these hot sauce type things uh, represent. Also, asset managers 
like operating in the hot sauce lane because Vanguard will never go there. So they can make more money there. And so they are attracted to launching. So we say that the bigger passive gets, the crazier new ETF launches will become, which is, again, an ironic byproduct of the Bogle effect. Hold that thought, Eric Balchunas. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all great podcatchers, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Again, subscribe at fullderadio.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Friendster, you name it, handle Full D Radio, and DM me to carry this show on your air. If you are just joining us, my guest is Eric Balchunas. He is senior ETF analyst. I just call him ETF guru, ETF wonk for Bloomberg Intelligence. He authored the wonderful book, The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. I always had a bone to pick with the late Jack Bogle, who was kind of a borderline mentor to me, who followed my work at Business Week. I profiled him. He helped me with coverage. I first saw him speak in college in Burton Malkiel's corporate finance class. Uh, he was very, very gentle and generous with younger people and um, not precious with his time, unlike other, you know, say, mutual fund or hedge fund rock stars. He was very much a man of the people. But he and I disagreed over international investing. He thought that there was really no point to buying an international ETF, whether emerging markets or developed kind of G7 type markets. He thought that the best mousetrap you could build was a simple S&P 500 index, this passively managed group of 500 uh, you know, mostly large cap blue chip companies, American companies like IBM, Apple, and the like, and they get a tremendous amount of their business overseas. So why do you need to go and create something pretty? But in that same corporate finance class where he lectured, we were told that the only free lunch in all of investing is to try to approximate to own a bit of every asset on the planet as low with as low a cost as possible. Now, that's not possible for me to hire some Sherpa in Peru that's going to buy me alpaca fur futures and other things. So the best I can do is buy a ton of ETFs at a low cost that buys me as many publicly traded companies on the planet. And when things zig and zag, I could get a great overall return. What do you think? It's a great question. I, I have some international, but Bogle made me think about it. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, in the book, I couldn't really find anybody who agreed with him. There was a couple things that even his closest friends kind of disagreed with him on. Uh, and that was one of them. International was something that most people like to have in their portfolio. Um, as Dan Egan of Betterment said, uh, Rome fell. Uh, you know, <laughs> he just wants to make sure that, you know, we don't know the U.S. will be the powerhouse for, <laughs> for 50 years. Maybe, maybe not. And he wants to own companies. If, if there's an emerging company coming out of Japan, he wants to own it. So um, that's one take. I think Bogle's, you know, what Bogle, I think, saw in the S&P 500 or the total market was U.S. companies are so much more than meets the eye. A, they do get a, a good amount of their revenue from overseas. It's a you know more global economy. The other thing is, if you you know some people talk about like oh well, there's all these ten stocks make up such a huge impact on the S and P five hundred, like Amazon and Apple and Google. Yeah, you're practically buying a tech fund at this yeah. point. They've become so big that you buy by buying a Standard and Poor's five hundred index to explain for our listeners, you're kind of buying. It has 20 or 25% of technology weighting at the very top. Yes. I, I would argue that's just the byproduct of the way things are going here and the valuations that active managers put on these companies. They generally like the revenue tech guys. A lot of these companies have a lot of cash on hand. So I don't know if that's horrible. We are a sort of more service tech economy here. But what's what I try to tell people is if you take an Amazon or a Google and you unpack the box, it's like five companies in one. Um, you know, like Google owns YouTube. Right, and you can go on and on. Um, Facebook owns LinkedIn. 
These are companies that could be companies on their own. So those top... Well, Microsoft, Microsoft oh, sorry, owns sorry. Facebook owns Instagram. I, I yeah. get them all. I, sorry, sometimes get, I might get my social... Yeah, it's hard. You need a program <laughs> now to tell the players. Yeah. So if you had like a tree, you would see that there's a lot of companies within these big companies. So there is a lot more diversification, I think, in the S&P 500 than meets the eye. And I, I thought Vogel thought that was enough. And like Buffett, he was just very into America and the innovation here. And and I, you know, as long as that lasts, I think he has a point. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with using international to diversify yourself. Uh, as Taylor Larimore pointed out in my book, though, Vogel's been right. You know, the past 10, 20 years, it's actually... 15 years, international has done nothing. Yeah. So will that always exist? I don't know. But, you know, it, it he kind of he kind of called that right, at least for the last medium term, I guess you could say. But here's the other thing. At the turn of the century, after United States stock market bubble, the United States had its lost decade for the first time since the Depression. I think the S&P 500 did nothing over 10 years. And it took a long time in inflation-adjusted terms for it to kind of catch up. And that's when emerging and international had their heyday. And and in fairness, get outside of the S&P 500 and you have the S&P 600 and the 400 middle capitalization companies or small capitalization companies had a wonderful decade at the turn of the century. These are things that Jack said you just don't need to be in. And I don't understand. I have always wanted to find a person like you at a cocktail party and say, what is the optimal kind of ETF portfolio? Now that Jack has, has, has bequeathed this trend onto the world, is it just good enough to buy an S&P 500 index fund? I meet a lot of value investors that say, yeah, just put it in that and forget it. Warren Buffett kind of says the same thing. Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking, you know, when SPY came out in 1993, we'll say that's a couple cycles since then. It's up 1,400%. And the MSCI all country is up 700%. So, I mean, you still got 700%, but if you go to the S&P, you just, you did better. And that's with the 2000s. The 2000s, you're right. The S&P was flat. Small cap value crushed it in the 2000s. And this is part of, I think, what you're talking about is the debate between the S&P 500 and the total market. I do think Bogle moved over to the total market over his life um, because you do get the small and mid caps there. Although he would probably be like, you know, either is fine. But that's where I sometimes point out in the book that nothing is really, quote, passive. I mean, if you buy the S&P 500, you're making a large cap bet. Uh, you're missing out on the small caps. A great example of a reason to buy the total market is Tesla. The S&P 500 did not let Tesla in for 10 years. And the total market had it since day one, basically. So you got a lot of Tesla's growth spurt in there. That said, you also got a lot of dogs that are small caps and and mid caps that just are bad companies. And that kind of offset it. So you could make the argument either way. But I will say that on our team, we sometimes talk about how the S&P 500 just has this magical specialness to it. I I can't explain it. How is that in that humans pick and boot and include companies into it. It is it is actively managed. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it has criteria to get in. You need like four quarters of positive earnings to even be qualified. It's like a country club. And finally, you're you're qualified. Then the humans who there's like 10 people on this committee. We interviewed the guy once. He wouldn't even he wouldn't tell us a lot. It's a, it feels like it's like a, I don't know, like the mafia or something. They meet in a back room and yeah. and uh th- this committee You're gonna get made, Tesla. You're gonna get made. <laughs> Let me prick your finger. Yeah, or you're going to get kicked out. <laughs> Macy's got kicked out. Uh, companies yeah. come in and out of it. Um, but they did not want Tesla in, even though they qualified. So they waited like an extra four months. When Microsoft was ready, they delayed on that stock too. So there's been cases where the S&P actually uses that human hand and that human decision-making to not include stocks or include them. 
And it's really fascinating. And in a way, the S&P 500, I, you could argue, is active. It's just pretty low turnover active. Um, and this is why Bogle – it's funny. Bogle said that he he wishes that when he came out with the Vanguard 500 index fund, he didn't tell anybody it was an index fund and that he was the manager. And he said, and I would be the best manager of the past quarter century <laughs> uh, because it was low cost. The key though of everything we're talking about, the, the crucial point though – is the S&P is dirt cheap because of Vanguard and because of Bogle it's now 3 basis points. So if if you if it 0.03%. Right. If you it, So how much on every $100 that you invest? Every $100, what is that? 30 cents. 30 cents. 30 cents. I mean it's just so cut yeah, right. Yeah, I I sometimes use the $10,000 and I'm like um yeah. if you put $10,000 into the Vanguard S&P 500, a slice of pizza at Penn Station would cost you more. Wow. Yeah, it's a good deal. But if it was 100 basis points, you would then get into a much more debatable situation with active. The reason passive is such a big deal isn't so much that it's passive, as we just proved the S&P isn't purely passive. It's that it's dirt cheap. And I think that's a main point in my book is that um, the index fund revolution gets – index funds get too much credit for it. I do believe that it's really a low-cost revolution. That's really the thing that Bogle did and that he should be remembered for and it, that is changing everything. And I'm not sure without Vanguard and Bogle and that unique structure of him and the company that we would have cheap index funds today. I believe we'd have index funds, but I believe they'd be much pricier and therefore they'd be much more of a debate with active. But when they're three, it's, it's almost like game over. Eric Paltrunas, close us out. I mean, I didn't mention inflation once in this, but it's very much front and center. The the most pressing inflation since the time of Paul Volcker in the early 80s. And you know that that's very toxic to the stock market and to stock market investors. And how is the ETF world contorting to service people with inflation concerns? Yeah, I mean, um, you can see it in the flows. The, the, the sort of core Vanguard low-cost investors, they're not shaken. They're just continuing to plow money. Vanguard and BlackRock have taken in a good amount of money this year. Um, they're not shaken. But uh, around the edges, people are definitely going into treasuries. They, they're a little nervous, and that's where they're going to go to hide out. Plus, you get much more yield in treasuries. That's the good news here of the Fed hiking rates. Um, and then we've seen people pick some spots. Like, for example, people have really gone into dividend, high-dividend uh, ETFs, which tend to lean towards energy stocks and, and um, have a yield that's very high. But you don't have to mess with the bond market because the Fed is hiking there. That could hurt bond prices. So there's been a couple places that have done well. Commodities have, have done pretty well. So around the edges, there's definitely been a regime changes. Value is finally coming back. Growth is in the gutter for a while. That's a change. So the definitely this this inflation has really shaken things up. Not so much just because of inflation, but it's really because of the Fed. The inflation has caused the Fed to go from totally accommodative to totally antagonistic. By hiking rates, you're just basically um, you know, uh, causing both the bond market and the stock market to, um, you know, it, it's it's very uncomfortable for both of those markets. Which is very unusual for both of them to have such a calamitous year. It's like the worst year going back, I think, to the early 70s. Yeah, but I try to tell people, zoom out. You know, they both had good runs because the Fed would lower rates, bonds would go up, and then that would help stocks. So they both the 60-40 went up together for a while. So, okay, fine. It goes down together for a year. I think over time, there'll be more diversification. But this is sort of when the Fed manipulates the market, it, it tends to manipulate that 60-40 balance a little bit. Um, and But it, don't forget, it manipulated to the upside in the past 10 years. So I, again, I try to tell people to zoom out. The S&P 500, if you go back 10 years, is still has given you 13% annualized return. You're really only supposed to get 8 or 9%. So you're still way above playing with house money. 
So this year is bad, but if you zoom out, I think you can see the big picture and realize, okay, well, we probably had to give a little up. The Fed was really helping us out. Now they're doing what they have to do. And uh, ultimately, I think you're going to revert to the mean. And again, over long term, the S&P should give you that 8 or 9%. But I think you have to look at it like and that. I think to underscore for listeners, I mean, 8 or 9% might not sound glorious to you, but very few people realize that you double your money every 10 years when it compounds at 7.2%, right? The rule of 72? Yes. And the S&P 500 has offered north of that. And so you have beaten inflation over the long run. But again, slow and steady wins the race. And it's that metaphor of planting the tree. Yeah. And this is a great point because uh, the S&P 500, you have to stay in it. You can't try to trade around these events or the Fed or whatever. It's very difficult to time rate. And this idea of staying in there and staying the course, which is Bogle's big phrase, I have a chapter called The Art of Doing Nothing. And I do believe that by Bogle just introducing a low-cost index fund into the marketplace, he's so undercredited with helping behavior because if you, once you lock into this idea of, oh, I got the whole market for three basis points, it's predictable, um, you, come, you can happily resign to never touching it. And one of the people I interviewed for the book was Michael Lewis, and he went to indexing in like the 80s, and he said, it's glorious. I never have to look at this stuff. I, I used to check my mm. portfolio a lot, and it's made me a better writer. And I love it. And I think he represents most of those low-cost index fund investors and why we see them very well-behaved even during bear markets. I think they're just like, what else am I going to do? And that's very helpful because in order to enjoy that compounding, you can't trade in and out of it. Eric Balchunas, he is the ETF guru with Bloomberg Intelligence, a formal title is Senior ETF Analyst, author of the Institutional ETF Toolbox and The Bogle Effect. The Bogle Effect's a great book. Please pick it up. You are always welcome to come back on this show. I'm a big fan of your stuff. Likewise. I had a good time. It was nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. Likewise. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com, fullderadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. I was talking to Bloomberg Intelligence's ETF guru, Eric Balchunas. I wanted to close out this episode with an excerpt from the Full Disclosure Archive, some of my 2015 chat with famed turtle trader Jerry Parker, this Virginian who answered a newspaper ad offering to train him to become a great investor, a bit like the dare in the film Trading Places. You're, are we talking about the interview? I want to know what happened in the first day. Like you're you're a kid, you're 25, you're 26, and yeah. you're flown into Chicago. There's almost like this Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory element to it. It's you and f how many other candidates? Uh, Forty people got an interview, I believe, out of a thousand resumes. So, yeah, I'm very nervous. I am trying to cram into my brain everything that I know and have learned about trading, as if I'm going to impress them or be able to tell them something versus a vessel that will absorb their information and be and believe what they have to say, uh, carry out the rules and the training and be uh, a, a servant to them uh, and be, you know, a, the type of trader that will help, will help them versus um, trying to impress them. So I go up to the interview and it's, uh, they just asked me a few questions. It's very low key. They asked me uh, how I did on the test. I said, I think I did really well on the test. And they said, yep, you did really well on the test. So I think some people they wanted to hire who had done well. Some people they wanted to hire that they wanted to hire people who did poorly, but had other things going for them. 
Were they screwing with your mind like, you know, one of those infamous Lehman Brother interviews, sell me my tie, or how do I open this window? You know, the, the legendary story that the kid ends up throwing a chair at the window because you can't <laughs> open it. The answer is you can't open it. Did they do anything like that with you? Not at all. Totally great guys, honest, incredibly smart. Once again, just wanting to tilt the scale a little bit. Trading can be taught, but let's try to find people who can understand and absorb the information and be willing to actually do it. Um, So, like I said, they hired backgammon players, blackjack players, authors, uh, an accountant from Virginia, all kinds of people. And it... um, so I think it was fairly successful in the ability to train people how to trade. Um, certainly a great experience working there. And Now, you got back on the flight thinking you'd have the, you had the gig? Well, I don't probably remember. I probably thought I might. It was probably a good chance. Certainly when they told me I did really well on the test, I thought, okay, I think this could be me. And they were going to whittle it down to how many from 40? 12. Wow. So, yeah. So that's right. So at the end of the year, towards uh, no- October, November, they ended up calling me, and I did get a job, and it was 12 of us. You'd already quit your job just on the prospect of getting hired by these guys? No, no, no. I didn't quit until um, I got the job. and But I, pro- I already had the Dean Witter job, so I don't <laughs> think I'd quit my accounting job, or I told my boss that I was going to quit the accounting job. But... Um, then I had to call Dean Witter and say, I'm not coming to be a stockbroker. So that was Son, a- you'll never be anybody in this town. Or better, better like, son, you'll be nobody in this town. The South will rise again. No, none of that, none of that jazz. Wow, Jerry Parker. So uh, you got the gig. What happened? Did they send you a letter? Did they call you? Interesting. I don't remember. I don't have my letter, and I don't remember if it was a call. I just remember going to Chicago. Once again, two suitcases. And somehow getting up there and finding a great apartment to live in, and um, life was great. Life was grand. Um, it was all, everything was ahead of me, and I knew it. It was just up to me to make the most of it. Uh, do you remember your first day in Chicago, your first week? Again, I'm thinking, you know, like a kid from a small town, never really veered far from Virginia, suddenly put into the big money high life, I'm bright in, lights, big city. I was embracing... Uh, the big city and the opportunities. But as I told you earlier, I my first bus ride on a Chicago bus, I did see someone get their pocket picked and all this screaming and yelling on the bus. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Maybe it was a metaphor. Maybe it was like, <laughs> Jerry, if you don't watch yourself, you're exactly. going to get your pocket picked metaphorically. Exactly. Jerry, I'm so good. I'm so astute. <laughs> I mean, this and the socks and everything. Good stuff. You're listening to Full Disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad, and we are very pleased to be joined by Jerry Parker, the famous turtle trader, the guy who went from uh, really nothing and a dead-end job and answering that fateful ad in the Wall Street Journal in 1983 to three decades later uh, uh, being a legend on Wall Street in many respects. Jerry, so you're there. You accept the job. It's a $25,000 a year job, but it's very much sink or swim. It's not like uh, you could just coast on this salary. You're going to be analyzed uh, constantly. When I read the book, it, it seems like they set you guys up in a boiler room type setting. Uh, you didn't have Bloomberg terminals or anything. Maybe you had Quotron machines, but you're given a million dollars, effectively real money. It's not funny money. And and let's see how you apply the the rules that we taught you in training in our course. That's right. After a two or three week, I don't remember, maybe two or three weeks of training in an offsite location, we were all ready to go all set. 
systematic trend following, follow the rules. Uh, at the Christmas party that year, 1983, right after the course, the training course, uh, one of the guys went around the party to ask all the new trainees um, the final uh, question. Here's the exam question, the final exam question. Um, if you hear that Rich's position is long soybeans, but uh, your rules tell you to go short soybeans, what do you do? Well, the answer is you go short soybeans. So we were told from the very beginning that if you lose money by doing the right trades, by following the rules, then that'll be fine. But if you make money and you're not following the rules, then that could be trouble. So it was a very um, systematic approach where it demanded um, us understanding how the systems worked and making sure that we actually did the trades we were supposed to do. So I'm suddenly thinking about the movie Reservoir Dogs. They give you code names and stuff like don't get to know each other socially. You're Mr. White. You're Mr. Pink. You do this. You do this. You're very mission-oriented. Yes or no, binary, black or white. Really, they, they were they trying to just beat out the individuality of, within all you guys? Like your preconceived notions mean nothing. Uh, Dennis is trying to prove a point that I can sculpt a perfect trader, a perfect machine from scratch. Uh, not really. I think that, once again, once you got the basics of the system and you were sort of told what works in the markets, how you should uh, look at the markets, what's possible, then I think their hope was that these 12 people would um, add some of their own experience and come up with some new ideas, new ways of doing things, quote-unquote, flair, that would actually enhance some of the things we were taught. So maybe Rich and Bill would learn some things or would get better ideas over using our experience. But I don't think that really panned out. I think that all of us being in the same room together, uh, trading together, listening to each other's trades and talking, I think what happened was is that uh, everyone sort of figured out pretty quickly that it's probably best to don't stray too far from what we were taught. And so I think the environment itself wasn't that conducive to um, create creative thinking. And, okay, so you have the basic system. What are you going to add to it? I think that happened once the program ended four years later, and we all went on our own, and we sort of had felt more freedom to, uh, okay, it's your own company now. Do what you want to do. I remember the first time I sort of did a trade that wasn't maybe by the book with Chesapeake in 1988, I was sort of feeling like guilty, like, oh, man, I feel kind of guilty that maybe this Rich wouldn't approve of this trade. Whoa, whoa, whoa don't jump forward oh, to 1980. We're still in a Duran Duran, New Moon on Monday era, 1984. Yes. Uh, I might even play that song uh, to, to establish the scene. You're there in Chicago. You have, a, you have an apartment on the Gold Coast. You're in this boiler room type situation with a million dollars to play around. What happened to that million dollars during the course of, let's say, your first year in quote-unquote business, 84? So in 1984... Um, my performance was poor. I wasn't following the rules. And I think most people were doing much better than me. And, the, and so I had... Was there a daily profit and loss thing? Oh, yeah. And after a couple of months, every day I would come in, my statement was minus $200,000. So it was very depressing and discouraging to look at that number all the time. So, But eventually, by the end of the year, I got it together and I finished the year um, plus a little bit. You were listening to some of my 2015 interview with famed turtle trader Jerry Parker. You can catch the entire episode. It's called Go Midwest, Young Turtle, wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. 
Follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>